0: Hello and welcome to this, our fifth uh, of these longer talks, looking at Leviticus, uh, the third book in the Bible back in the Old Testament. I'm going to pray and then we're going to read. Father God, this is uh, an immense privilege to be looking through uh, all these things that you are giving us to think about. We thank you for scripture. We thank you for your humble choice to reveal yourself, what you're like and how you do uh, interacting with people. And we do uh, want to ask that you would inspire us by your Holy Spirit to listen well to this book. And as you inspired those who wrote it, we ask that you would inspire us as we seek to understand it. Amen. One of the first things I wanted to do just before we crack on uh, with anything else is to show you this book. There it is, Evidence for the Bible. Uh, It's by uh, Anderson and Edwards, and it's quite a brilliant look at some archaeological stuff that we find in the Bible. The particular reason why it caught my eye this week, uh, I'm just looking at page 24 here, is to do with uh, the way in which law was set down in the ancient Near Eastern world. Um, So it's possible uh, to find archaeology so there's a, a law code for Hammurabi uh, as a Babylonian king contains many laws that are similar to those given through Moses but there are contrasts too and it's important that we understand how law was given in the, to the people around the uh, Israelite emergence in that part of history so that we understand what was normal for them what their culture was like okay I'm just going to read uh, from Leviticus 24 I'm starting at verse one. The Lord said to Moses, command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light so that the lamps may be kept burning continually. Outside the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant uh, in the tent of meeting, Aaron is to tend the lamps before the Lord from evening till morning continually. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. The lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord must be tended continually. Take the finest flour and bake 12 loaves of bread using two tenths of an ephah for each loaf. Arrange them in two stacks, six in each stack, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. By each stack. Put some pure incense as a memorial portion to represent the bread and to be a food offering presented to the Lord. This bread is to be set out before the Lord regularly, Sabbath after Sabbath, on behalf of the Israelites as a lasting covenant. it belongs to Aaron and his sons who are to eat it in the sanctuary area because it is a most holy part of their perpetual share of the food offerings presented to the Lord. My name is Mike. I'm the pastor at the Baptist Church and we've been looking at Leviticus for a few uh, sessions now. It's a big book. Uh, that, That idea has not escaped me at any point. It's big and dense and exciting. Uh, It's exciting when we we learn to read it as part of the story of God and his people. We can't take a pick and mix approach with it. That doesn't do it justice. In fact, it would be quite to dishonour the God who gave it to us to think in those terms. It's huge. And as has been the case every time uh, this week as I prepared, I've run through to Uh, almost 20 pages of typed notes on my word processing program um, and then have had to work out how much of it I think I can do without. We could of course had a a series of 15-20 looks at Leviticus. Uh, Maybe that's something in the future that we might look to expand towards. But for now we're doing a shorter series. This is part five. There'll be a part six next week and then we'll be done. We're not going to do uh, justice to everything, uh, but what I do want to focus on is just a few things. I'll come to a little sort of summary of where I think we're going to go in a moment. Uh, but I did want to highlight this within the first few hours of prep uh, this time round. It blew me away that God's covenant includes a promise. Now I, I did know that it was there, but what I hadn't really clicked until I studied this was that because of that promise, it's a covenant that looks forward. It's not static. It's not the terms of Um, a a relationship that's going to just stay the same God doesn't do static really he does dynamic And, and that means that this covenant and these laws therefore that frame it look ahead and they are the basis of hope there's something to to look forward to to look for in the future the promise of the covenant is the promise that God will restore his creation and that includes the renewing of Eden The concept of Eden, which is a place and time for God and people to dwell together. The aim is to renew Eden and to renew it for as long as being in God's company would be a blessing. I think sometimes when we think about what heaven is like, we we get bogged down in, in physical realities. I think it might be more helpful to think. That to be with God for eternity really is about saying God making Himself available to for, to us for as long as us being in His presence would be a blessing to us. The covenant that Leviticus helps to frame is God's agreement with humanity. It's not all in Leviticus; some of it's in Exodus too, and it's explained elsewhere. Now, that agreement is an agreement with an aim; it goes somewhere. That's. Uh, let's look in due course at how we might understand that but I I did want to say that uh, for these few minutes we're going to look very sort of briefly at at some things that you will find in Leviticus 17 to 27 That's 11 chapters for what it's worth the later section of that particularly chapters twenty-three to 25 you find that 1% of all the words used are Sabbath there's a real emphasis on God's um, pinnacle his his final aim which is uh, to share his presence with humanity so we're going to look at the significance of chapter 24 the importance of chapters 23 to 5 and that's kind of we'll blend those two together a bit the climax that is chapter 26 and the reading of chapters 18 to 20 several destinations as I said that we won't stop at it's a whistle stop tour with not that many stops we're not doing, as we haven't before, a verse by verse approach. It's not practical to try, but we are looking at the wider story. We're understanding how the story fits and what it tells us. There's a bigger narrative at play here. Uh, we've got the story of, of creation and exile and return and approach and, and God bringing something wonderful into being. It, creating the conditions through which he can dwell with humanity and humanity can dwell with him he brings order out of chaos he creates an environment for humanity with um, land and and sky and rivers and seas and uh, fish and birds and, and livestock and, and vegetation and no end there's also a rhythm created day four is a good thing to look at for how God sets a rhythm of the sun moon and stars and that rhythm points to humanity to god himself and then at the end of it we have this end goal the dwelling with which is represented in sabbath the rest of genesis charts humanity's exile the journey further and further away from god and then from the start of exodus we have god bringing his people back it's a physical and symbolic journey so it's out of egypt but it's also away from death and towards life as they cross the wilderness in that wilderness a place that's lifeless a sort of Um, without creation place as they might have seen it we are able to identify God remaking humanity through his people Israel and they eventually under his instruction make the tabernacle it's a God-designed place where God can dwell with humanity and where God can meet with humanity and once God takes up residence he invites his people to approach and gives them instructions to symbolize how that approach is going to work so sacrifices and, and priesthood and the cleansing of his house are all features in that. This then is a long-running and heavily symbolic story and I've been saying to one or two people as I've been working through it that it feels like there's pretty much more meaning than plot. It's not that the plot's unimportant it is crucial but there is so much meaning laid on to it that we need to really take the time to understand that learning. In this remaining section of Leviticus we have further instructions. There's lots of instructions in the book and all of them have a purpose all of the instructions, explain things. At this point, I'm going to say two things that I hope are becoming familiar to us. One is that Leviticus does not reveal its treasure to a shallow reading. We need to be willing to do some digging, some spade work. Secondly, we must also allow ourselves to listen to what the text is telling its original audience before jumping to what we think it's telling us. That's simply good study of Scripture. I believe god intended us to receive this scripture in the 21st century and that all of it is useful but i believe we'll make ourselves look somewhere between silly and arrogant if we want to shortcut good quality study and go for a superficial reading there is a journey in these chapters a journey about access but access isn't the end goal eden i believe tells us this the goal of redemption history is to make actually humanity Holy, but again, not for the sake of holiness, but for the sake of community. Perhaps I have not put that brilliantly. Holiness is what we're aiming for, except we can't really reach it. Leviticus shows us something of what it looks like to live in a holy way and to worship in a holy way. And the Day of Atonement in the middle of Leviticus sort of shows us how it's not attainable. It shows us that every year God knows he's going to need his house to be cleaned out. Because people being around it brings their unholiness in towards his holiness, and so cleaning is necessary. But only by being holy can we share God's presence, and that's awkward because we're not capable of being holy. The thing is that God wants us to share his presence, so he wants us to be holy, and he then provides a route to holiness for us. Indeed, the goal of the regulations in Leviticus, particularly this 17 to 27 section. Um, is communion and fellowship with God. We have uh, a passage in Hebrews that says this, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Here's the thing. We can't be holy, and Israel couldn't be holy, except by one thing, which is spending time in God's presence. God provides all kinds of means by which the people might be in his presence because by doing so they become holy and they can share his presence with him. This is the direction Leviticus takes. It's a story in which God tells his people how to approach him and then shows them how to dwell with him. Now, it's at this point I'm going to take a bit of time to look at Leviticus 24. And you may feel I'm jumping the gun, going straight to a late chapter, but I have a good reason, and it's to do with structure. Structure we've seen is important before. So on the left-hand side of that slide, you'll see references to the Day of Atonement and the Pentateuch and Leviticus. And it's this sort of the center of the center of the center of the story. So you have this five-book account of God's dealings with His people, and in the middle of those five books is Leviticus, and in the middle of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. And the fact that it's the heart of the heart helps us, by structure, see that this is the core meaning of the whole five books similarly we recognize that the Sabbath is the pinnacle of creation because of structure the seventh day which gives us the Sabbath instruction Sabbath creation by God in Genesis 1 is the seventh paragraph in an account that begins with a seven word sentence and that seventh paragraph has within itself three references to it being the seventh day. So there's this repeated structural emphasis on the seventh day being key. Structure matters. Part of how the story is told. The opening chapters of Leviticus are about the invitation to meet God. The middle section of Leviticus is the response to the corruption of God's house. And the third section, in the blue at the bottom there, is about how to dwell with God. And that's what we're looking at in this this talk today. The third section demonstrates the principles of being holy. That is, it talks about how to be as God is, how to be a community that reflects God's intention for humanity as, a, as a, perhaps a helpful way of, of paralleling how this works. In the Gospels, we can see that if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. If we want to know what humanity is supposed to be like, we look at Jesus. Here in Leviticus, if we want to see how humanity should function, we look at the principles that God gives his people for how the community should function. These chapters explain all of that, or, or at least enough of it that, that the people of God can get a handle on things. And so this third section is the story of God's intention for humanity. That blue that blue last line there, there's an invitation to meet with God, there's responding to the corruption of God's house, how to build, sorry, how to be with God in God's place is the third section. And that third section itself builds to a crescendo. There are things to avoid listed and there are things to do that are listed and there are instructions about the rhythm of life, God's ordering of the calendar itself around his dwelling with people, followed by a promise, a promise to fulfil relationship. Chapters 23 to 25 are the climax of section three. And the heart of that climax is chapter 24. There we go. Chapter 24 is therefore structurally really important. And if there's something about this chapter that represents climax, then we need to see how chapters 17 to 22, so that the first um, portion of this third section how those chapters lead up to this how does chapter 24 complete our understanding of chapters 22 to 25 and how does the whole thing complete our understanding of chapters 17 to 22 now you might at this point say mike you're making this way too complicated and i get that but i want to answer that thing that that, that contention by saying no i'm not And I want to explain that by talking about going to Poland when I was 14. We went to take a a Shakespeare production, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, all the way across Europe by land on a coach, uh, apart from the North Sea bit on the ferry, uh, to a city called Miletsch, which is about 100 miles from Krakow, and we went in February. I really wanted to go. I was a sound engineer for that production. And uh, we stopped in Berlin in 1991, so so quite soon after the Berlin Wall came down. Uh, and, and it was February, so it was cold. Uh, and I was encouraged to, to be prepared to go. So I tried to learn little Polish without much success. I brushed up on my German, which was not a popular language in Poland, but did work. Uh, and I made sure that I followed my kit list. I was given some long johns by a big burly policeman who lived up the road, and his had shrunk in the wash, so my 14-year-old body could handle the size. I got a really big rucksack, uh, I got some thick woolly socks. Um, I acquired some vests and made sure I had lighter clothes for the journey. And I paid lots of attention to the advice about hospitality. This is a very culturally different place. The, the main similarity, really, between me and my um, my host family's son, who's a 17-year-old uh, lad called Christoph, whose father was a, a tractor engineer. The big similarity was that we both liked the rock group Queen. But that was about it. I had to go prepared for another country. And as we read the Bible, we need to do the same thing. We need to go prepared. We need to recognise that the shape of stories was a big part of how stories were understood. We need to understand how the accounts, as they were delivered and shared, made sense to the people who first heard them. We skip that. We don't do any justice to what God is saying by his spirit and his author. In Leviticus, structure matters. We have chapter 24 as a significant core of chapters 23 to 5. We have chapter 19 later on as a significant core of chapters 18 to 20. We'll get to that a bit later. But chapter 23 gives us something important, which is the organisation of festivals through the year. just dwell on that just for a second the year is divided into two parts with an emphasis on the first and seventh months so the opening uh, month of each half of the year there are two seven-day festivals the first month's one is passover and the seventh month's one is tabernacles and there are seven other holy assemblies of the people through the year notice the use of sevens a lot again to represent not just the creator but also the pinnacle, that seventh day Sabbath concept. The festivals and assemblies shape the whole of the year, and they bring people to God and to worship, as part of how the rhythm, the the rhythm of the year unfolds. They reflect uh, that there are two halves of the year um, as well, and and that that we think probably symbolises day and night as well. So the rhythm of the year reflects the rhythm of the day. Then chapter twenty five. So that was the the festivals listed there. In chapter 25, we have the setting out of the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. And these give rhythm to life beyond individual years. So chapter 23 is the rhythm within a year and chapter 25 is the rhythm of the years. And then in the middle, you've got chapter 24. And this is about something sort of similar, but also something different. The, The rhythm of the year is about bringing people back to God. On a regular basis reminding them as the year goes on that he has promised to dwell with them and then he does so all those um, festivals that are gatherings of, of God's people to himself and then chapter 24 does something sort of similar but kind of more immediate There's a whole continuity thing going on here. You see, chapter 23 gives us the continuity of God's presence through the year, through the festivals. Chapter 25 gives us the continuity of God's presence in the rhythm of the years. Chapter 24 gives us the symbol of God's continuity of presence in the life of the people on a day-by-day and week-by-week basis. And that symbol works through loaves and lamps. There are 12 loaves. Those loaves represent the people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel. If you like, everyone is included as those 12 loaves are laid out on the table, on a gold table. And then the presence of God is represented in the seven lamps. Those lamps are on lampstands and those lampstands are also gold. And the lampstands point the light of the lamps towards and across the table with the bread on it. The renewal of the lamps and the bread, the lamps all the time and the bread weekly, reminds the people again that the intention of God is to be with his people, sharing his presence with them and blessing them. That that golden glow over the bread is the warmth and goodness of God glowing over the loaves that are the people of God. It's God's goodness glowing over his people, his ongoing blessing and presence the priests are told they must sustain this pattern because it's a physical reminder of God's presence. It's what it's for. For the people to be able to be confident and reminded and and have an ongoing assurance of God's presence and the goodness goodness of his presence, they need this symbol, this practical outworking, this practical, um, this sort of living diagram of what's going on here. The love and faithfulness slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness that god describes himself as bringing we have again we have god reminding his people of his creation intention expressed in the Sabbath to be with humanity in shared presence and fellowship and if you're part of a culture that doesn't write things down much a culture where you learn by doing a culture that sees significance in patterns and numbers and structure of stories then this is the perfect message It's a message of promise, isn't it? I will remain with you. It's a message of hope, too. No matter what else is going on, you can place your hope in God because he's always pouring the golden warmth of his blessing and goodness across his people. This is the core of 23 to 25. Those chapters that talk about the continuity of God's presence. The core of those chapters is the continuity day by day, and week by week, the 24-7 presence of God. Chapter 23 is the 12-month presence of God. And chapter 25 is the rhythm of the year's presence of God. I will just pause for a moment to take a quick look at the second half of chapter 24, which could be a talk all by itself and concerns a traveller uh, of half-Egyptian descent who misuses God's name. I don't want to spend a long time on this it's important but we've got a lot to cover what I do want to say is that um, back in in Leviticus 10 we've got a couple of priests called Nadab and Abihu and what they do is they take the approach to God into their own hands they 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 set themselves up as being able to decide when they can go into God's presence and God says No, that's not okay Um, I'm holy and, and special and and actually if you want to approach me I want that too but I need to make a way for you to be able to do that appropriately so when Nadab and Abihu um, and they gather up incense and they burn it when they go into God's presence um, God says this isn't the right way uh, and so they die and what we see with this unnamed half Egyptian traveler is that he does something that's really very similar it kind of it kind of bookends um, with chapter 10 that sense of of all those reg- regulations to do with things being clean uh, and things being done right because this what this traveler does is he uses god's name as like a as a portal as a, as a as an approach mechanism and this is what it was for god gave his name to be used in worship so it was part of how he could be approached by the people but this traveler what he does is he he decides that he will set terms for when he will approach god by using god's name when he feels like it, it using it in a way that it wasn't designed to be used and and he dies and that death helps with reinforcing that understanding that god wants people to come to be with him he invites them to be in his presence but it's his invitation to make humanity cannot initiate an approach to god because god is just too full of brilliance he is too awesome in the proper sense of being full of um Full of things that should inspire all. So, I um, said so that was brief. Do take a proper look at it elsewhere. The movement of Leviticus is towards then chapters twenty three to twenty five. These these um, so there's this story of the continuity of God's presence. And chapter twenty six, which follows chapter twenty five, starts like this. So verse two says, "This observe my Sabbaths." have reverence for my sanctuary i am the lord pay attention says god spend time in my presence and take seriously my invitation and my meeting place i am the creator and the rescuer The always will be pay attention to my voice because i am worth listening to but spend time in my presence and, and heed my invitation i'm going to kick on a few verses We're still in chapter 26 which i think really does sort of and bring things together. And verses 11 and 12 say this, I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. As well, with God is the purpose of the Sabbath. So Sabbath is both ends and means. God has set up this rhythm of his ongoing presence so that through those Sabbath celebrations, through that weekly connection, that weekly gathering around the presence of God, they will get to know him. But it's also the ends, the presence of of God is, is is the goal. The shared presence with God in God's place. That's where God wants it all to head towards. Seeing this as the climax means... But the regulations from verses, sorry, from chapters 17 to 22 can be properly recognised for what they are. They are a way of describing what life with God looks like. There's a book I've been reading a lot uh, by a guy called El Michael Morales, and it's about Leviticus. It's It's a, an in-depth study. I would commend it to you. It does require concentration to read it, it doesn't require a degree to read it. require concentration and i would encourage any of you who want to be able to talk knowledgeably about what leviticus is saying to do the legwork to get stuck in and read some of the commentators don't go thinking that because you've seen something on youtube that echoes what you already think that therefore that's the right answer and don't go thinking that if somebody says something that you don't like or don't agree with that they must be wrong do the spade work read the books and morales says this the laws Describe a life that fits with Yahweh's holy nature and that may be defined adequately as one of justice and love. They describe a life of justice and love and that life of justice and love fits Yahweh's nature, his holiness. In effect, God says, be mine, live the way I intended for you to live. Live in a way that reflects me because I knew what I was doing when I created humanity in my image. This is crucial, as is the location for the giving of the instructions. it in narrative terms, in story terms, the people are coming out of Egypt and heading for Canaan. And God needs, it would seem, to make really clear that he's inviting Israel to be with him. And so he says, don't be like Egypt where you came from and don't be like Canaan where you're going. Here you are between the one and the other. You are in a place where I can recreate you as a people. Be mine. Don't be theirs. Don't be Egypt's and don't be Canaan's. Be mine instead. You may share geography, but you don't share ownership. The Eden setup is what my people in my creation is supposed to be. That's the design intention. Go for that. That's the best way. He says this and then gives them instructions for what that looks like. Don't be like them. We have a, a kind of, well, it, it, here, here we are in, in part four. Okay, we're looking really at how to read Leviticus 18 to 20 properly both those chapters 18 and 20 not 19 but 18 and 20 have a series of don't do this instructions and they're written in parallel that is to say they say the same things a chapter separating them and the commentators tell us that this is because they're they are written for those two eventualities all those two geographical locations so the first list although it largely echoes the second the first list isn't about canaan it's about egypt and the second one isn't about it is Egypt; it's about canaan it's a way of god saying you you either have known or you will know these ways of doing things and you are to stay away from them and they are specifically about worship practice they are specifically about worship practice They're not about everyday life. If they were, they would almost certainly include some things about marriage and divorce and inheritance and and, um, things like that, sort of domestic arrangement. But those aren't there. And that, the commentators tell us, is because they are focused on worship practice. I'm going to just stick this in front of you, Leviticus 18, 1-4 the Lord said to Moses speak to the Israelites and say to them I am the Lord your God you must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you do not follow their practices you must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees I am the Lord your God but Mike you might say nothing in that says worship is the theme here I get that but let's do our little bit of literary context here and look at chapter 17 which is instructions for priests okay And let's also remember that bit uh, where we identify what is not covered by these regulations. I'm going to flick back to them so that you can have another look. Those parallel sets of instructions are not about domestic arrangements. And chapter 17 is about priestly behaviour and practice. So 18 and 20 are about approaches to worship. The aim here is to guard the pure worship of God. Now there are, of course, general ways in which the people of God might understand these. But remember that right the way from the beginning of chapter one, this has been about how to approach God. That sacrificial system is about how worship is conducted. After Nadab and Abihu spoil uh, God's house, corrupt it, the regulations about what's clean and isn't are to do with worship. Chapter 16, about the Day of Atonement, is to do with how God is approached particularly the way his house is kept clean for when people might approach him and how that's maintained annually. Chapter 17 is about the behaviour of priests. We do not suddenly abandon that in order to make generic comments about their circumstances and the general behaviour of of a society. These are instructions about worship. Okay, Chapter 19, which is in between them, uh, gives a list of prohibitions. But the general thrust is much more good practice rather than 18 and 20 have been don't be like them, don't be like them. Chapter 19 is much more well, do be like this. And it's built around the Ten Commandments, so it's building on something that the people already know. It's framed by God's covenant and promise to his people. There we go. Chapter 18, don't be like Egypt. Chapter 20, don't be like Canaan. The best way to be is the way that God is teaching them now as they are in between those two places so while they're in a position to learn um, with a clean slate this is what he's teaching them okay yes I'm just going to add to that Um, there's an important thing for us to pick up from this God may well say to us don't be distracted by where you used to be, where you've come from. and Don't be seduced by where you are going to end up. Don't gravitate towards those ways of being. Always gravitate towards my way of being. You've got a choice, says God, and I want you to choose me. And I want you to choose me because I am the God who describes myself as slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And much of those chapter 19 instructions have to do with good relationships, echoing God's intention for creation, good relationships. And this God of relationship expresses his intention and character through instructions about how to protect and honour the victim, how to welcome and take care of the foreigner. And this echoes the intention of the faithful God. Remember, Leviticus 26, 12 talks about how God's going to walk among his people i will walk to and fro among you i will be you your god and you will be my people and as we've seen before we see a way in which jesus absolutely fulfills this later it's, it's this presence of god that brings completeness it's the presence of god that that fulfills humanity that, that makes it holy there is no other way for humanity to be holy except by god's invitation god stands out even as he moves among his people I also want to just highlight that I believe that these these instructions chapter 19 echo something really significant in the wider Leviticus narrative this is God saying I want you to be with me and I want you to be holy so that you can be with me and the only path to holiness is the presence of God But the holy instructions are therefore an invitation. They're an invitation to dwell with God. They describe what mature, healthy living with God would look like. And this means that when we read Leviticus or we talk about Leviticus as if it's purely a legalistic framework, then we don't do justice to the story or to the God behind the story. The God who describes himself as slow to anger full of love and faithfulness they don't do justice to a god who's reaching out being patient as he leads his people towards himself they don't do justice to the invitation of god for humanity to dwell with him which is sabbath's entire point we make it a legalistic framework framework we don't do justice to any of those things at the same time i say there's a flip side to that coin if we only see the instructions as the work of some kindly uncle who was bought us a wonderful house to live in, or as as the invitation of some giant cosmic teddy bear who wants to just give us a lovely fluffy cuddle, then we don't do justice to the story of Leviticus as a narrative of a glorious, perfected, holy and wondrous God. Because God is those things. He is holy. He is different. He is glorious and very powerful. We've seen in chapters 10 and 24 how how lives are brought to an end by those who don't take seriously the need to honour God as they approach him. We don't, if we don't consider all those characteristics when we read Leviticus, and we make it all about one thing and not the other, then the invitation loses its gravity. The problem lies in the caricature that we create. There's caricatures there of um, Tom Cruise, Uh, and of boris johnson and of barack obama and and you can tell that that's who they are but you can also tell that they've been exaggerated in order to draw attention to particular features and and that means that some of the other features kind of are lost caricatures are very often rather comical because they're not entirely accurate or fair there is a danger inherent within the limitations of the human brain that we can't comprehend god But we need to be careful with how we respond to that, because so often in our attempt to grasp him, we try to paint a picture, but we emphasize one thing over another and we end up with a cartoon, we end up with a caricature, with one trait or another exaggerated, while others are diminished. And that's the reason why disciples have complained to me over the years, as as I've preached, I've been preaching now for more than 20 years, Disciples have complained to me that preachers pick and choose bits of the Bible. Please be careful if you want to accuse a preacher of that, because although I, I will put my hands up on my own part and on behalf of many others, there are definitely favourite bits that every disciple, including the preacher, will want to go back to. And particularly in particular contexts, there are things which seem to be repeatedly relevant. So yes, there are moments when things are favoured, but when you when you suggest, when you complain to a preacher that they pick and choose, that's a, quite a significant slur on their character. To suggest to a preacher that they pick and choose is to say they have no integrity before God. Please be careful as you do that. I've also had believers complain to me that I downplay the fear of the Lord. And I've had Christians complain to me that I overemphasise justice and holiness and the requirements of those things. And I've had folks complain to me when I've talked about the expectations and costs of following Jesus. The reason why those complaints get made, and I'm fairly, fairly sure of this, is because of the caricaturing that all of us tend to make All of us tend to emphasise one feature of God over another and not allow him to be his whole self in balance. What I would say is if your first thought when we talk about disciples who caricature God is to think of all the Christians you can think of who do that, then I'm going to need you to stop right now. And the reason I need you to stop is because what you need to be doing is thinking, how do you paint a caricature of God with your assumptions and your priorities? I need to do the same for me. Which features of God do we downplay so that we can focus on the other things that we believe are more important when actually God is complex and rounded and full of different characteristics, all of which need to be honoured. The reason why all that needs to be done well is that caricaturing has led to some monstrous things being done in the name of Jesus, in the name of Scripture. Horrible stories of, of... women being abused from within their families while their abusers have recited the Lord's Prayer all the way through to to the behaviour of the of the conquistadors from Spain in Central America and South America through to the behaviour of the Crusades through to the, uh, the the argument for slavery being made by Christians quoting scripture. Abuse and slavery and genocide all justified because of a caricaturing of what god is like and a misapplication of scripture to support that caricature i'm not saying that any of us are making those cases what i am saying is that is that once we start allowing that caricature to develop it, it's a dangerous road to be on listen we know we know what the god of leviticus is is like because we can look at jesus and see Jesus says in John 14 verse 9 that to see him is to see the father and unless we believe God's character changes and I don't believe it does and we know that the personality of Jesus in the Gospels is the personality of God in the book of Leviticus Jesus prioritizes the loving of neighbor and in Leviticus this is the center of the center of the way of life of worship But Leviticus 18 talks about behaviours to leave behind in Egypt 20 talks about behaviours to avoid in Canaan in the future 19 talks about the priorities of worship for God's people and at the heart of that chapter 19 Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against the fellow Israelites but love your neighbour as yourself I am the Lord Don't get distracted by that fellow Israelite bit Remember that Israel's job is to be the archetypal people of God They are to embody what it means to be humanity the way God intended Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. Holiness then is not about excluding the other. God's guide to holiness includes welcoming the stranger and providing hospitality to the foreigner. That's in Leviticus. Not just in a we can offer you a hot meal kind of way, but in a we can share with you the advantages of belonging kind of way. Holiness is an invitation so we need to take great care. If we ever believe that holiness is about exclusion, we need to be really very careful we are not caricaturing God. He deserves way better than to be caricatured by you and me. So consider this. Access to God is not God's end goal. His end goal is coexisting, sharing a fullness of life with his created humanity. That is the Sabbath pinnacle of created intention. The order that God brought out of chaos is an order that focuses on the relationship between God and humanity. And we cannot be holy without him. That's why we need grace when faced with the demands of holiness those listed in leviticus grace is our only answer the root made by us the root made for us by the god of love and faithfulness the holiness deficit of humanity's baseline position is terrible how could how could we do anything but say an enormous thank you to the god who makes it possible to bridge that gap and for us to approach him The minute we start reading the second half of Leviticus as you need to keep these regulations in order to be with God, you willfully reject the presentation of Leviticus as a book of invitation as indicated by its opening in chapter 1, verse 1, when anybody approaches. Finally, as we've been thinking about story, a quick word about Leviticus 26, 12. The idea of God walking among his people completes a story. This is not the end of the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy does that job. And Deuteronomy is likely to be a single speech from Moses on the threshold of the promised land. But there is a way in which the story sort of ends here. As we've seen, Leviticus belongs to a narrative of God creating and then humanity moving away and then God bringing humanity back via Israel. And here at the end of Leviticus, God makes a promise to restore the arrangement and intention of Eden. Here are those verses side by side. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That's God walking among his people in Eden as the culmination of his created intention. As the, as the climax of bringing order out of chaos. And then at the end of Leviticus, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. God invites us all to go back to his intention for humanity. Let's pray. Father God, abounding in love and faithfulness, slow to anger, full of holiness we recognise that you invite us to be with you and that you make it possible for us to approach you and you make it possible for us to dwell with you, would you help us accept that invitation, would you help us see that to be holy is to be in your presence and then seek your presence every day would you help us to see time spent with you as the absolute highlight of each day and would you continue to bless us through this amazing book, Leviticus. Amen.